Well then, with a view to the uh, blessing of God and his help and guidance, let's turn to uh, the passage of scripture that we read in the book of the Judges and chapter 11, that's on page 389, and uh, right at the bottom of the page at verse 30, we read that Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hands, it will be that whatever or whoever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the people of Ammon, shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. So Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. And uh, as I mentioned just before the first reading, uh, you'll remember that we are considering this passage and the incidents that are recorded for us here by God. We're considering them under the general heading of the third commandment and the importance of oaths and vows particularly. Now, I hope you remember from last time that both oaths and vows are special kinds of promises. They are fundamentally promises. But they are promises that involve God. That's what distinguishes both an oath and a vow. In the first place, uh, an oath is a promise to which God is a witness not in the sense that he witnesses everything, but in the sense that he is specially called to witness it. So he is called into the transaction of a promise in the special capacity of a witness. And last Lord's Day we saw the solemn occasion when our Saviour was put on oath by the High Priest, and because he was put on oath, he had to answer the question that the High Priest put to him. And of course, in formal um, circumstances of that kind, to, to break an oath in a court of law, for example, is the special sin of perjury. It should be the crime. It is a crime, perjury, although it's being treated very, very lightly. But really, perjury in a court of law is an extremely serious thing, as of course perjury would be in a court of the church too. But in any case, that's an oath. It's a special promise to which God is a witness. Now, a vow is higher than an oath. A vow is the highest form of promise because it is a promise made directly to God himself. And therefore, it is an act of worship. And the vows that we are familiar with are vows that are taken, of course, in the context of formal worship. Marriage vows, which are usually called that, are actually really oaths. But the vows taken by elders, by ministers, by deacons, these are vows in the highest sense of the term. They are acts of worship made during a service of worship, and God calls those who take them to the highest account or highest reckoning. And, of course, in connection with all oaths and vows, we need to remember the seriousness that God attaches to them. There are many verses that teach that. I'll, I'll only quote one. 
where we're told in Numbers 30 and verse 2, if a man makes a vow to the Lord, that's what we're talking about here today, a vow to the Lord, or if he swears an oath to bind himself by some agreement, he shall not break his word, he shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. And that's because we have called God to judge us on that basis. Now in that light, I just want to do the same thing with vows today as we did with oaths last week. We looked at a case in point to show the importance and the solemnity of an oath. Well, let's do the same in connection with a vow. And however difficult it may be, I want to look with you at one of the best-known vows in the Bible, although it's fair to say it's probably one of the least understood vows in the Bible. Now, having said that, there's a good reason, perhaps, why it's the least understood. Um, A couple of reasons. First of all, and this takes us to underlying technicalities, but we can't change it, the fact of the matter is that in the Hebrew, this is a difficult passage to translate. I've said to you more than once that Hebrew is a terse um, language that's very economic with words, not as easy to translate as the Greek of the New Testament at all. And that's why sometimes you find uncertainty. Whichever version of the Bible you read, even the King James Version itself, you'll notice that there are little marginal notes which give you a possible alternative understanding. You have one of them in the King James Bible right at the end of the chapter where it says that the daughters of Israel went to lament the daughter of Jephthah. The King James translators acknowledge that this is an unusual word. It's not the normal word for lament. And in their margin they put or to talk to the daughter of Jephthah which gives an entirely different understanding as to what happened to the daughter of Jephthah. But more on that, uh, God willing, tonight. But it is a difficult passage in the Hebrew. The other thing, of course, is that it's just difficult to understand anyway. Um, What is it that's happening here? What is Jephthah promising? Is he fully aware himself of what he's promising? Is there some kind of uncertainty in his mind? Um, Once the event happens, is he sure, absolutely sure, what he must do? Uh, What understanding does daughter have of it? And so on and so on. It is difficult. But nonetheless, I think with the Lord's help, we will come to a better understanding of what vows are, what this man's faith is, and his daughter's faith which is a faith that's very easily overlooked in the passage. So may the Lord help us with these things. Now, concerning Jephthah himself, right now it's not of the utmost importance that we understand his background fully, but let's just say to begin with that he is one of these judges that God raised up to deliver his people from oppression. These judges... Uh, ruled effectively over different parts of Israel for a period of around 300 years. And they were always raised up by God in emergency situations when his people moved away from himself. And uh, when they began, to one degree or another, to become worldly, 
perhaps even to the extent of adopting forms of idolatry. He would raise up these uh, judges uh, to deliver them, and they needed deliverance from the idolatry, but also from the oppression that came as a result of it, because one of the ways that God deals with uh, disobedience is by unleashing opposition. And that opposition can come against you severely in the form of uh, satanic oppression, um, demonic oppression, uh, persecution, um, in many different kinds of ways. The Lord raised up the Ammonites sometimes, the Philistines sometimes, the Amalekites sometimes, depending on the sin, depending where it was committed. But once they were brought low, once they were brought to a recognition of their real need of God and their sin and their backsliding, God's response was to raise a judge. And the judge was used in the hand of God to deliver the people. Now, I think it's worth saying, I mean, this is not a study of the book of Judges. If it was, I would make this point very, very forcibly. But the judges are some of the most misunderstood people in the whole of the scriptures. I have no hesitation in saying that at all. I've heard some things said about Samson, which I think are disgraceful from the pulpit. I think he is seriously misunderstood. Jephthah certainly comes behind him. There are other people of God who are misunderstood as well in the scriptures. But sometimes the way these people are presented, they're made to look foolish as well as faithful, faithless, even though the Bible history clearly commends them. In fact, Samson has events surrounding his life which make him absolutely unique in the Old Testament. But people do him down because they misunderstand and misinterpret certain things that are written in the Word of God. Now, in connection with interpreting uh, the history of God's people, we should, we should follow um, a simple rule, really. And that's where we can be charitable in judgment. We are charitable. That's how we deal with each other. I mean, you want, wouldn't want me to put the worst interpretation possible on what you say and do. I wouldn't want you to to do that with me either. Why do it with the saints of God? If there is a a good and proper and spiritual way to understand what it is that they're saying and doing, let us take it like that. In fact, you will normally find that when something is being done by the people of God in the Bible that is out of turn, our attention is drawn to it. And in that way, we're left in no doubt And otherwise, we should always give the judgment of charity. So let's just bear that in mind. Now, in connection with Jephthah, it's important just now, and more important later, to notice that he was rejected from his father's house. I'll come back to this. That's because his mother was a prostitute. Um, Later, his father... um, through his lawful wife, had several sons. When these sons grew up, they disinherited Jephthah, who was the oldest son in the family, and they effectively exiled him. So rather like David, he became an outlaw. Although he was uh, highly gifted, others who were disaffected uh, recognized that he was highly gifted, and as we'll see, he was a spiritual man too, and He gathered them as followers. 
David was in a similar situation. You'll remember the 400 men that gathered around him. People were themselves in need, and they were considered like these people worthless men. But nonetheless, God taught and trained them through David, and they became spiritual men who were enabled with him to rule the kingdom. But you'll notice that in their hour of need, these, this family, who were obviously very prominent in Ephraim, uh, this family uh, called him back. When the Ammonites were uh, oppressing the land, they recognized that the person they had effectively got rid of was the person that they needed to help them. And so they called him back to help. And he agreed to it, providing in verse 9 that he would become their head. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you take me back home to fight against the people of Ammon, and the Lord delivers them to me, shall I be your head? Now, tonight that will become significant again. But yes, they agree to that. And so Jephthah gathers with the elders of Gilead in a place called Mizpah. And the first thing Jephthah does is he sends messengers to Ammon to attempt to negotiate with them. That uh, negotiation fails, and so it becomes necessary to fight. And on his way through the land, as he picks up an army effectively, he makes this famous vow, which is forever associated with his name. Significantly, this man is mentioned in the book of the Hebrews, He's mentioned as a man of faith in chapter 11, even though this is effectively the only thing that's recorded about him in the Bible, which immediately uh, should put our spiritual antenna into operation. It's an indicator to us that whatever we may think is happening here, that the Lord is pleased with what is happening here, that here we have a man of faith who is exercising faith and a faith that is worthy of being recorded. So that's painting a kind of context for us in which we should look at this vow in connection with understanding it. And the vow, of course, is as we read it in verse 30. Whatever or whoever comes out the door first when he arrives, he will offer to the Lord. In some capacity, he will dedicate that person to the Lord as a burnt Offering. Now, there's no end of controversy amongst uh, Jews and Christians as to what Jephthah vowed and why he vowed it and how he fulfills it. And all these things are interesting and they're important. I mean, what is it that he's vowing? Why is it necessary to vow it? And how does he fulfill it? Specifically, does he put his daughter to death? Does he actually burn her body? If so, was that pleasing to God? Is it an act that's to be justified and commended? Or was it an act that was displeasing to God? Is it to be condemned? And is it to be abhorred? There are plenty who'll say, and I mean, you, you can pick up a commentary on these things, and there will, plenty, will be plenty who say that he was foolish to make this vow, that it was a foolish vow, But these people will say that once he did vow that foolish vow, he was indeed bound to carry it out. 
There are others who will say that he was foolish to make the vow, but that he should have repented of the vow instead of carrying it out. Now, just to be clear about some of these things, I think we need to make a distinction at the start between what we could call a careless vow and a sinful vow. A careless vow is a vow that still needs to be performed, even if it was careless. By careless, I mean a vow that hasn't really been thoroughly thought through. It still needs to be performed. Because it's our duty to thoroughly think it through. Let me take an example for you. Uh, it's the example of Joshua and the Gibeonites. When uh, Joshua was conquering the promised land, there was a, a group of people in the promised land in that district called the Gibeonites. And they recognized which way the wind was blowing. And they knew that, that God had given this promised land into the hand of this almost irresistible force that was making its way through the promised land. So they decided on a, on a tactic. What they did was they, they got very old clothes. They got wineskins that had become very old. They dressed themselves as people who had come from miles away. And uh, they appeared before Joshua as a delegation, saying that they were from a foreign country and that they were afraid of the power of Israel and asked if they could enter into a covenant with Israel so that Israel would spare them as a people. Significantly, there were some among the children of Israel who were smelling a rat and not sure of who these people really were. Joshua, for some strange reason, proves mysteriously gullible for a man as wise and spiritual and powerful as he was. And so he enters into a covenant with them to spare the Gibeonites. Three days later, Joshua discovers that these people aren't from a far country at all. Uh, They're actually local to the promised land. And it was part of his duty to wipe them out, as God had said. But Joshua recognizes that he's actually bound to the vow that he made. He's bound to the oath that he made to preserve this people. And so they were. Down through the years they were preserved. Now you may say to yourself, well, was he really bound to that oath? After all, uh, he was deceived into it. You could effectively argue that. You could say, well, these men actually lied about who they were. They lied about where they were from. They lied about their motive. Everything. Well, that's right. But to see whether God wants that oath kept or not, you have to fast forward over 300 years uh, after David has become king. And there's a three-year famine on Judah, a three-year famine. And David recognizes that the reason for this famine has something to do with God, that God's displeasure is on the land. And when he and others with him seek the Lord's guidance and seek an explanation for the famine and what they've done to bring the wrath of God upon the land, God's answer, surprisingly, is this, that just a few years before, King Saul had nearly wiped out the Gibeonites altogether because he considered them a worthless people. God actually remembered the covenant that Joshua had made 300 years before with the Gibeonites. And God said to David, 
you've got to avenge the life of these Gibeonites or the lives of these Gibeonites on the household of Saul. And when justice is carried out, he says, rain will return to the land. There's our authority. By that simple act, we know that Joshua was right to keep that oath. Wrong to make it, right to keep it. He was careless. The carelessness was his own. And because it was his own carelessness, it had to be kept. Now, that incident itself uh, teaches us a lot of things. Uh, One thing it teaches us, incidentally, just as a, a covenanting church, is that national covenants still bind. People often say in connection with covenants like our national covenant of 1643 or the solemn legal covenant between Scotland, England and Ireland in 1647, they say, well, these are over 300 years ago. So was this one. So was this one. Uh, Just because we've forgotten a covenant doesn't mean God's forgotten it. The, The covenant was made with him. These were promises, vows that were sworn in the Houses of Parliament in England, the Houses of Parliament in Scotland, church assemblies in England, church assemblies in Scotland. That's as binding as binding can be. These are national, not just national covenants from top down. They are sworn commitments to God. Our country's forgotten. God hasn't. But the main lesson for us just now is just that an oath is binding even if we've been deceived into it by our own fault and a lack of due diligence on our own part. Notice how important oaths and vows are to God. So a careless vow still binds us. And you'll notice, of course, that very often in a vow uh, you may be a real loser through a vow. Psalm 15, which we'll, God willing, sing tonight, reminds us that the righteous man keeps his oath even though to his hurt he swear. So the oath that you took has ended up hurting yourself. doesn't matter. You keep it. Why? Because it's an oath. How much more is that true in connection with a vow? So that's a careless vow. But a careless vow is very different from a sinful vow. A sinful vow is a vow that actually commits you to doing sin or commits someone else to sinning. Let me take an example which is extreme, but sometimes extreme examples help with these things. If if you were to, let's say someone seriously wronged you and you vowed revenge, perhaps even a very serious form of revenge, to, dis- to discredit the person who's wronged you, their reputation entirely, their family's reputation, maybe even, maybe even, let's say, to take it to a real extreme, that you vowed to kill the person. You just said before God, I, I promise that I will kill that man. Well, that's a sin. And to keep that vow is just to add one sin to another. God doesn't require you to add one sin to another. If the original vow you made is sinful, you are most certainly not obliged to keep it. Your duty is to repent of a sinful vow and to take careful heed in connection with how you speak again 
Oaths and vows are never to be taken lightly. I sometimes wonder in connection with the oaths and vows. I don't sometimes wonder. I often wonder in connection with the vows that office bearers have taken in churches over many, many years. To what extent they've thought of these things, even beforehand. Which is a very solemn thought itself. But we need to take care what we vow. If it's careless, we're still obligated. If sinful, it requires repentance. Our pledges matter. The reason, one of the reasons our pledges matter is because God is a God of truth himself and he requires truth of us. God is absolutely honest and righteous and straight all the time. When you think about it, friend, that's all you've got today in terms of your hope for eternity. You may say, well, my hope for eternity is in the fact that Christ died for me. Well, it's deeper than that, I'm afraid, because if God is a liar, even that is hopeless, is it not? You depend on God's truthfulness when he says that if you believe, he will forgive you, don't you? You depend on God's truthfulness in connection with every single word that he has ever uttered. If God is not true, then we can't rely on anything that's been said or done. Anything at all. I I referred recently when I was preaching from the letter to the Hebrews to the fact that God remarkably puts himself on oath. Which is a very, speaking reverently, it's a very humbling thing to do. And if we don't like that word, it's a very condescending thing for God to do. Extremely condescending. In the letter to the Hebrews, we're told that Uh, God took an oath in connection with his promises. Um, When he made a promise to Abraham, we're told, because he could swear by no one greater than himself, he swore by himself, saying, surely, or as I live, as I am who I am, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. The writer to the Hebrews says that men swear by the greater. I mean, when we swear, we are calling a a greater to be our witness. Um, And God, he says, determined to show the unchangeableness of his own counsel, confirmed the counsel by an oath at which he just put his own, his whole being on line. He can't call a higher, but he says, Listen, he says, this matters so much to me, and I want you so much to believe what I have said regarding salvation, the surety of my salvation through my son, and the promises that I have given in connection with my son. I so want you to believe these things, he says, that I am swearing by myself, putting my integrity upon the line, and confirming it by an oath, We have two immutable things. I think these things are the counsel that he gave and the oath that he gave confirming it. We might have, in these two immutable things, we have a strong consolation. We who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope that is set before us. That's, that's, by the way, you know, we often, or maybe sometimes mourn, our, our lack of assurance and things of that kind. But that reminds us of how strongly God wants us to be sure of what he has promised us in Christ Jesus. He put himself on the line. He, uh, if I was telling you something, 
If I was telling you something and uh, you weren't believing it, I, I may be rather wounded that you weren't believing it. I would say, why, why aren't you believing what I'm saying? And if you said, well, I, I really want you to promise that, I might be even more offended and say, well, what is it about my word or myself that you just won't accept? But here is God coming along, and he's, he's more or less imagining someone saying, but I'm not sure about what you're saying. And he says, very well, I'll take an oath. How humbling is that? But that's how much the Lord wants us to believe in his promises, which are all yea and amen in Christ Jesus. So there's a distinction between oaths matter, in other words. Oaths matter. They matter. Vows matter. But we must distinguish between a careless oath, which binds us, and a sinful oath, which doesn't. It needs repentance. But where does that leave us in connection with Jephthah? Well, friends, we need to look at the vow a lot more closely. I want to look at um, three things with you, two of them for the rest of our time today and the third one uh, in an extended way tonight. The, the first two are, first of all, the origin of the vow. Where does this come from? And second, the spirit in which the vow is made. How is Jephthah doing this? What, what does he want to achieve, or is he trying to prove something? If so, to whom? And tonight, in more detail, the actual substance of the vow. What really is he vowing, and how did he fulfill it? But let's begin with the origin of the vow. And here the Holy Scriptures help us, of course, and they help us straight away. By the origin of the vow, I mean, where did it come from? Did it just come from the flesh or from the spirit? Was was this something that Jephthah thought would be a good idea? Or even worse than that, was it from the flesh in the sense that he's kind of bargaining with God? As vows can sometimes be. Uh, for example, you're lying in hospital and you're really ill and you say, well, Lord, if you, if you spare me from this, then I will, what, go to church twice? On the Lord's day. Is that vow binding? Of course it's binding. It's more than an oath even, isn't it? It is a sacred vow. Have you forgotten such a vow? Have you neglected to pay it? <coughs> but where did such a vow come from? Even if it came from the flesh, it still binds you. But the Holy Spirit gives us an understanding here. You'll notice that immediately before Jephthah makes the vow, we're told in verse 29 that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. Verse 29 says the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, and verse 30 says, and Jephthah made a vow. Now, surely, when the Holy Spirit writes it in that way, we are meant to link these two things. That the activity of the Spirit of the Lord upon Jephthah is connected with what he speaks. We're meant to make that connection. It is of the Lord. He's being guided here and he's being led. And if that's so, that will help us understand, secondly, the spirit in which he's actually making it. It would lead us to assume anyway from now 
that it's not careless, that it's not foolish, but in fact that it is a careful vow, and it is a considered vow, or if you like, an evangelical vow. And it has to do with a full consciousness of his dependence upon God for what he's going to do. After all, he's radically outnumbered, so he has serious dependence upon God for what he's going to do. You'll notice, by the way, that Jephthah didn't need to do it. He didn't need to do this, but he's doing it, and he's doing it conscious that he needs the Lord's help for victory in the battle. He's also doing it conscious that it would be right for him if God gives him victory in the battle to somehow mark that victory and to dedicate that victory altogether to God and not in any way to himself. That's what I mean by an evangelical vow. There are other things perhaps you could introduce into the idea of an evangelical vow, but that's at the heart of it. There's no bargaining here. You've got to get that right out of, out of sight. There's, there's no, you do this for me and I'll do that for you. That's not the spirit. It's more like Jacob's vow. Jacob famously vowed a vow at Bethel. And he, after God had spoken to him in a particular way, uh, Jacob said that if you do such a thing for me, then I will respond like this. Uh, it's best to just quote it. Uh, just just for a, a little context, because it's necessary, I think. Uh, Jacob expected to be the heir, which is important here too. He expected to be the heir of the household. God had promised that he would be the heir of the household. Things had gone drastically wrong. There was a fallout with his father. And far from being the heir, he was effectively, it seemed to him, disinherited. He was exiled from the home. And instead of having everything, he had nothing. Years later, looking back, he says, all I had were the clothes I was wearing and a staff in my hand. That's how I left the country. And he left the country for 21 years, I thought, until God saw fit to bring him back in. But when he lay down that night, he lay down to sleep in a place called Luz, and he felt absolutely God-forsaken that night. As we can sometimes feel, in spite of promises, in spite of good things, we're suddenly in a place where we're totally God-forsaken. And that's how he feels. But that's the night in which he dreamed a dream of the famous stairway to heaven. And God spoke to him that night. And God said to him that he was still his God, that the land, the family, the blessings, the spiritual blessings, even the ancestorship of the Messiah was actually his. You will spread abroad to the west, the east, the north, and the south, in you, the families of the earth will be blessed. Until then, God says, I'm with you. I'll keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. Because I won't leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. Here is the God who doesn't lie. Here is the God of the oath who puts himself in oath. When jo Jacob woke up, he said, of course, famously, surely God was in this place and I didn't know it. How often that happens in life. You go to a place you didn't expect or didn't even want to be in, and suddenly God is in the place. But he got up early in the morning, he took the stone, he set it up as a pillar, he poured oil on top of it, 
changed the name of the place from Luz to House of God, and he made a vow, saying, If God will be with me, and if he will keep me in this way that I'm going, giving me bread to eat and clothes to put on, and so that I come back here one day to my father's house in peace, God shall be my God. And this stone, this place, shall be God's house. And of everything you give me, I will give a tenth back to you. The people who say that that's a bargaining spirit haven't a clue how spirituality works. They haven't a clue. That's not a bargain Jacob is making. That's a heart that is overflowing with gratitude to God. And what he sees fit as a response is, when God has finished doing that, because he will do it, he says, this is how I will mark it. I'll return here and I will worship you here when you have changed my circumstances completely from desolation, ruin and poverty to exaltation, building me a house and wealth. It's an evangelical vow. It's made in faith. It's not doubting God's goodness. It's believing God's goodness. That's why Jacob left Bethel on the way to Paddan Aram with a spring in his step. He didn't leave Bethel the way he left his house because he believed God. Well, Jephthah is doing exactly the same thing here too. He's going into a battle depending upon God to give him the victory and when he does so, he's going to dedicate that victory to him. There's no bargaining in this at all. Now, um, There's nothing in Jephthah's life that prepares us for taking this vow in any other way. Far from being the kind of barbaric, semi-heathen person that people present him to be, making a vow that most, most evangelical people say is a careless vow that he shouldn't have fulfilled. There are some people who say it was, it, it was a careless vow that should be fulfilled. Most say it was a careless vow that shouldn't be fulfilled. Either way, it makes him a pretty barbaric semi-heathen. How a person could get the idea that he had the authority to actually offer his own uh, flesh and blood as a, a human sacrifice to God is, is well beyond my comprehension for reasons that will come to tonight. But Jephthah's not an ignorant, uh, semi-pagan with a vague knowledge of God and with a wild way of life. Um, like I said, sometimes when we bring the people of God in the Bible down to that level, I think sometimes the motive is to excuse ourselves, quite frankly. I think that's very often the motive. Um, Certainly, as I said, there are blemishes attached to God's people, and when they're there, let's deal with them honestly. But when we have a tendency to fault-find in them, it's because it makes ourselves feel better. Of course it does. The best way to make yourself feel better is to compare yourself with someone else, favorably. But there's nothing in Jephthah's life to warrant us looking down on him in that kind of way. Nothing at all. Let me take just a, f a few pointers for that before we close. The first thing that's worthy of note, and you can read this when you go home because I didn't read it in a reading today, but if, if you read the way that he spoke to the Ammonites, the 
negotiation that he carried out, you'll discover that he knows his Bible history inside out. The way that he represents how Israel tried to pass through the land, how Moses had said to the, uh, to the peoples that all they wanted was to pass through on the king's highway. They wouldn't take anything. They wouldn't use anything. That was resisted. Uh, so a battle was initiated against Israel. Israel fought that battle and so on and so on. He recounts that history exactly as it's told in the book of Numbers. Is that a um, semi-pagan barbarian? Yes, he may have been exiled from the people of God for some time, but he knows his stuff scripturally. He knows how God has dealt with the people down through the years, exactly as it is in the truth. That's the first thing to note. The second thing to note in the same passage is that he knows how to apply that history to the current situation. He says to the Ammonites, your duty is to accept that you were the aggressors three, um, long ago, that you accept that you were the aggressors, that uh, we have a right to the land that we now possess because we won it in a war of aggression instigated by you, and it's your duty to accept that providence until the Lord ordains otherwise. Extremely wise words. Not the words of a barbaric semi-pagan. In other words, he doesn't just know God's word, he can apply it. There are many people who criticize Jephthah who can't do that. The third thing about him is that he speaks all these words, we're told in verse 11, before the Lord in Mizpah. Mizpah is a name that's full of many precious biblical associations. The the name Mizpah means a watchtower. And wherever you find Mizpah in the Bible, it's a place where God is looked for and met with. As though people are on their watchtowers, uh, waiting to hear from God. And, and these people were on their watchtowers. We're told that they are deliberately assembled in Mizpah to get God's guidance in connection with Ammon. God's guidance appeared to be to them, go and get the man that you put out. Now, it might not have been easy for them to do that, but they, but they went and did it. But we're told in verse 11 that when Jephthah spoke, that he spoke all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. Now, this expression before the Lord shouldn't be understood again as a general expression in the sense that everything's before the Lord. I mean, um, everything that happens in Stornoway here is before the Lord. Everything that happens in the United Kingdom is before the Lord. Everything in the world is before the Lord. But when you have the expression used like this in a technical sense, it means that it's in the context of worship. The assembly hasn't just assembled, they have congregated in the name of the Lord. And Jephthah is involved in this, and it's conscious of God's presence, conscious of the presence of God's priests, perhaps even of the Urim and the Thummim. It's in consciousness of all that that he speaks what he has to say. Mizpah, this particular Mizpah, there's a couple of, there's three Mizpahs at least in the Bible, but this one was the scene of an old sacred covenant between Jacob and Laban. And these things are before the people as these words are spoken. And, and Jephthah speaks them before the Lord. So he knows his scriptural history. He knows how to apply the Bible. And he spoke what he spoke before the Lord. You'll notice fourth that he actually desires peace. 
He desires peace with others and with his brethren. Take with others first. He negotiates with the people of Ammon. Now, like I say, you can read that later from verse 12 uh, right down uh, to, to verse 27. There's a long account there given of the way in which he negotiated with others. And you'll notice that his desire with Ammon is for peace, not war. The command given to Israel to um, exterminate the inhabitants of the land of Canaan was very specific. Uh, It was very time-bound, and there were spiritual reasons for it, for their decadence and so on. The people of Ammon and Moab were not included in that. They were on the other side of the Jordan River. There was no, no historical reason to be against this people, and you'll notice that he's therefore not against them. God's command to us as Christian people is what it always was. Once Israel had settled in her land, and once she had been the executioners, the lawful executioners of those people for a specific reason, her duty was to live peaceably with all the nations. That's why you find David and so on making covenants with the nations round about on carefully constructed terms. Not covenants that um, compromised religion or spiritual life in any way, but covenants that were needful and necessary and proper. We ourselves are told to live peaceably with all men. He doesn't want us to go out there with a confrontational attitude, trying to kick up trouble or to create strife with people just because they are not Christians. That would be a, a grotesque thing to do. As much as lies within you, the writer to the Hebrews says, live peaceably with all men. Be at peace with your neighbor if you can. Be at peace with him. Seek his peace. Seek his well-being. Even when the people of Israel were taken captive to Babylon, God said to the Israelites, when you find yourself in Babylon, he didn't say this, but the effect of what he's saying is this, don't conduct a campaign of guerrilla warfare to bring that empire down. He says, work for the well-being of the place where the Lord has put you. Work for the well-being of that place which is an extension of this principle, that as much as lieth within you, live peaceably with all men. That's what he does with the Ammonites. He effectively says to them, we don't want any war. The aggression is yours. It's like Psalm 120, I am for peace. They are for war. I say to them, I am for peace, but nonetheless they are for war. So he wants peace with others. Again, where's the barbarian semi-pagan? But more importantly than that, and this is really the last point for now, he also wants peace with his brethren. When you go back over his experience, one of the things that strikes you is his brotherly love. It would be easy for him to be bitter against his family. It's quite strange how many of God's people and the the people that God actually used significantly had serious trouble in their own homes quite a strange thing. You'll notice how persecuted Joseph was in his own house to the, to the point where he was effectively exiled. David, when he went to, to bring um, food to his brothers in the camp at war, was effectively told to go home. Uh, what are you doing here? Uh, Christ himself um, 
they attempted, his own family attempted to extricate him out of situations because they thought he was beside himself. And so it goes on. Jephthah is another example. He was the eldest, he was the heir, and all of a sudden he's disinherited. He had done no wrong, we're told of no sin in his life, he just had the misfortune to be born to a mother who was a prostitute. Um, That was his misfortune, not his crime. It was his misfortune and not his sin. You know, self-righteousness is very quick to judge people according to their circumstances. Very quick to do that. It seizes on a person's circumstances and says, Ah, look at that. What do you expect from that? True Christian people will judge themselves and others on the basis of character. They'll ignore the fact that a person may have been born of a prostitute. Uh, There are plenty of people who who have been born out of wedlock, who have been used mightily by the Lord. We don't judge people like that. Sins are committed, these themselves are judged for, that's the end of that, we move on. But these people, they're not going to move on. The son of this harlot shall not be an heir with us which is effectively what the Jewish people said of the Lord Jesus Christ too. So, like Joseph, really, Jephthah finds himself rejected by his brethren. And like the Lord Jesus Christ, he finds himself wounded in the house of his friends. Uh, Christians can expect many wounds in life, but the hardest ones to take are the ones you get at the hands of your friends and the ones that you receive in the house of God itself. David himself was an outlaw. Of course, it meant for Jephthah, like it meant for David, that he had no access to the house of God. It, he's effectively unchurched. He's effectively unchurched. It would be easy for him all these years to fall away, perhaps even just to renounce the faith that he grew up with and which he obviously knew so well. And it would be no surprise if when the brethren came back to him that he said, It's your problem. Sort it out yourselves. Why didn't he say that? Because he's got grace. He's got grace. You know, we are like the brethren. If we make Jephthah a a Christ figure for a moment, um, one, one who is to be the heir and the overseer, we push him out and we reject him in our own prosperity. And then when adversity comes, we suddenly go back to him and say, well, we need you after all. It would be quite understandable if the Lord said, well, no, that's not your attitude, really. But the Lord never answers like that. He never answers like that. In fact, he offers to help. Certainly he attaches a condition. He says in verse 9, I'll come back to this tonight, if you take me home to fight and the Lord delivers them, Shall I be your head? Yes, he says that. But still, he says, yes, I'll do it. Why? Because like Joseph, he still loves his brethren. It's really hard to keep loving those who appear to hate yourself. Paul famously said to the Corinthians, the more I love you, he says, the less I appear to be loved by you. That's a strange thing. 
But he could only keep his side of that. He could only keep his side of that. You keep your side of it with the Lord's people and with the world. He still loves his brethren and he loves the Lord's cause. Now that's what I mean when I say that if you take all together everything that you see in connection with Jephthah here, you haven't got a barbarian semi-pagan who's carelessly offering a possible human sacrifice. You've got a good man and a godly man who's doing the Lord's work. And that's why when it even comes to his fulfillment of the vow later, I mean, he, he, he actually says, you know, he tears his clothes when he sees his daughter and he says, alas, my daughter, you've brought me very low. You, you're even amongst those who trouble me because I've given my word to the Lord and I cannot go back on it. That's not someone who's mistakenly going to sinfully fulfill what he had sinfully committed. That's someone who is intelligently going to fill fulfill whatever it is that he has intelligently committed. He's got plenty of reasons to break this vow, if you'll pardon that expression. <coughs> he had no right to promise a human sacrifice. If he kills his daughter, he's got no dynasty. We're specifically told here that he's got no other sons, no other daughters. He's wiping out his own dynasty if he's somehow going to offer his daughter to the Lord. So he obviously believes it would be wrong to break the vow because it was right to make the vow and he will keep the vow even if it is to its own heart. That takes us, of course, to what was it he vowed and how did he fulfil it. Uh, Let's close our service by singing to the praise of God in Psalm 56. And verse 8. Psalm 56 and verse 8. My wanderings all, what they have been, thou knowest. Their number took. Into thy bottle put my tears. Are they not in thy book? And in verse 12 he says, Thy vows upon me are, O God. I'll render praise to thee. Wilt thou not, who from death me saved, my feet from falls keep free, to walk before God in the light of those that living be? The last four stanzas to God's praise. Thy wanderings, O God, they have
The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.